and welcome to episode 102. Sounds like uh, the Zoom meeting struggled a little bit to get going there, but uh, welcome to episode 102 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Sheen. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars and hard to believe we, we actually um, are almost like more into astronomy than ever and we have more notes and more information coming from listeners than we ever had, which is really awesome. We're, we're getting into this about a year now, and it uh, seems like we have we have more ideas and more show notes than we can possibly get out the door. But uh, how was your week, Shane? I think you're off this week. Yeah, I was on vacation, so that was really nice. I was able to observe three different days, uh, two daytime sessions, one nighttime. Yeah. And uh, all three were actually quite good, quite enjoyable. Wow. How was your week? It was good. It really warmed up on Friday. I went out for a walk uh, in the early afternoon and it was, uh, I think it was around 20 degrees Celsius here, which is um, pretty wild for Saskatchewan. Um, bef- you know, like basically, um, I think that was the, the day before the first day of spring. So that is, is almost unheard of. I can't recall it ever being 20 degrees here on a winter day, like literally the last day of winter, um, but still 20 degrees. Is, is that a record here, Shane? Uh, I don't know if, if Regina set a record, but three or four places in the province set records for uh, the hottest day ever recorded. Yeah, or, or for the yeah. hottest, you know, March 18th or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the weather here is, is, is extremely interesting. Um, it really is. Because, you know, I, I've experienced, um, you know, in the summer, I've experienced uh, negative single digits, like I've been down to negative three. Um, in the middle of summer, dog days of summer, I've been at negative three in, in the summer doing observing. And, uh, you know, here we are in, in a, a winter's day, plus 20, you know, not many places are you going to experience those kind of extremes in, in the run of the year. And I was thinking last night, I was out, I was out for a walk. And uh, this is like the first time I was kind of walking through one of the fields in, in the conservation area near my home. And the, the ground was getting soft. And I, I said to my wife, I said, Ooh, the, the ground's getting soft. And she says, probably still frozen down there somewhere. And I remembered I went observing in May one year, it's like the first of May. And it had been one of those brutally cold winters. Um, I think sort of that we give this year a run for the money, but it hit it, you know, the, the cold weather had extended into April and I went camping and it was, it was warm. It wasn't like hot, but it was like, you know, mid teens, 15, 16 degrees Celsius. And, uh, you know, at night it was supposed to go down to like one or two degrees Celsius. And, uh, when I crawled into my sleeping bag that night, um, my temperature gauge was reading minus four, uh, outside my tent. And the only thing I could think of was that what had happened was I think the ground was still frozen. Cause I get into my tent and although during the day, like with the sun up, the ground felt like cool, but you know, it didn't feel unusually cool. And then at night I put my hand down on the floor of my tent. Like it felt like the, the floor of my tent was probably minus 10. So I think the ground was still frozen. <laughs> wow. Good stuff. So what did you observe? What did you observe this week? Um, well, I had, uh, I'll do the nighttime session first. It was, uh, okay. it was Friday night and, um, my goal was to look at some double stars. Um, I had sent out some tweets about, uh, the double stars that I was observing that night. Um, mm-hmm. the seeing on Friday was outstanding. 
Um, probably the best seeing that we've had in OG since sometime last year. Um, so mm -hmm. first target was serious because the seeing was so good. And because, you know, it's starting to get, uh, um, if, if you wait too long, um, past sunset, it's starting to, to recede in the sky actually. So, um, the seeing, like I say, was phenomenal. I was able to use, uh, 285 times on the, uh, TAC 76, oh, wow. uh, Q. So, you know, that's really, that's almost a hundred times per inch of aperture, which is pretty outstanding. Um, but still I yep. was unable to see series B. Uh, there was at one point, so I was, yeah. I, I was using the drift method again, where I would let Sirius just drift from one side of the eyepiece all the way to the other side. And then, you know, hoping to catch it at some point during that transition or the, during that drift. But really, you know, the, the key moment is just when Sirius passes the field stop and, and then, you know, you, you lose some of the glare and then you hope to catch a glimpse of Sirius B. And there was at one point I thought I saw it, but I couldn't repeat it. So due to that, I, you know, I, I I'm not confident that I actually saw it because there's so much light that bounces around with the, uh, kind of the flare or the glare of Sirius that it's, you know, it, it's hard to say. Um, so I don't want to say that I saw yeah. it. Um, but, uh, it was, it was interesting to try nonetheless. Um, but I went up to cancer and, I'm using the RASC double star list um, as kind of my guide right. right now. Figured I'd just start working through that in the backyard. Um, so what I found, at least for the stars that I looked at that night, um, you know, pretty easy splits, not too challenging at all. Uh, there's seven five six four six, a very easy split using a forty millimeter eyepiece. Um, both appeared fairly what like white stars to me. Um, primary was yeah. a little bit brighter. Um, I did three, three, nine, five, as well as seven, three, six, six, eight. Both were very easy to find, very easy to split the separation on them. I, I don't know so, what the, sorry, what are these, is. what are these, Shane, what are these numbers? Are they Struve numbers? Um, let's just see here. No, I don't believe they're Struve. Uh, so yeah. Um, one here is, uh, so three, three, nine, five is HR. Um, the seven okay. five six four six is HD. Uh, seven three six six eight. I think that. Oh, that's HD as well, uh, and that's in uh, Hydra, not in Kansas. So these these are just okay. So those are the catalog designations. Cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure of the separation because again, the um, the list that the RASC provides is kind of in my opinion, missing some detail. Um, like it doesn't have the separation, which is kind of odd. Um, but anyway, regardless, uh, I also split, uh, I think it's Tegman, uh, T-E-G-M-E-N, uh, a named star in cancer. Um, and that was, a, that was the funnest one of the night because it was a little bit closer. Uh, the two were uh, 5.5 arc seconds apart. Um, so the 40 yep. millimeter in the TAC 76Q, um, slight detection of the double, uh, but I did need power to split it, you know? So at 40 millimeter, it looked like kind of a, almost like an ovalish. You, you could tell that there is more than just one point of light there, but I couldn't see blackness between the two points of light. Um, so then I used a 12 millimeter ortho and that split, uh, the star. And like I say, that was the funnest one. 
But then after my session, um, I discovered that there's a third star that's a part of that system oh. that I didn't observe. Um, and it's uh, 1.1 arc seconds away, I think, from the companion star. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a lesson learned. I probably should have just used more magnification to see, you know, what was really there. But, you know, again, this is something that I would, that I would kind of look for in a list, you know, to, to indicate that there's, uh, there's three stars that are observable or there's five stars in this system or whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little, I guess, a little frustrated with this list because it just is lacking well, some key information. Yeah, well, take notes. I mean, the list is still is still new, and and Blake, uh, the person who who came up with the list. Um, I mean, you know, my, my advice was to run the list as a bit of a like a bit of a pilot first, mm. and then after after people do it, you kind of get the feedback. Then you make your edits, and then you make it a certificate. But I don't know why everybody wants their list to be a certificate. Sort of no offense to anybody, but I'm not really sure why that is that, uh, you know, like, and, and in fact, people have asked me to make um, one or, or more of my list uh, certificates as well, or, or, or if I wanted them to be certificates, maybe put properly. Um, I always say, no, <laughs> do not do that. Do not make mm-hmm. my, my list a certificate. Because once you, once you do that, the, the problem that you run into is that uh, it's, it's much more difficult to make changes to, to a list that's become a, a certificate. So for example, um, if now they go back and say, well, well, you know, you, you should make, make that extra star an, an observation uh, in order to, to complete that list, then, well, what do you do with people that, that didn't make the observation and didn't find that out? Or, you know, it becomes really difficult. And then you have to sort of re- rework everything. But if you just kind of make it like an informal list mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, and then people go and observe it and then, you know, later on you, you can award the, the certificate once you kind of work the bugs out because until like enough people observe it it's difficult like with one of my lists which is called uh, deep sky sorry it's called wide field wonders deep sky wonders being the walter scott houston book which i which i love and pay homage to in that list um you know even still today i'll get emails from people like oh yeah well that i, I should have that note in there or or this should be more clear or maybe the object should be called something else and i'm i'm totally open to making those changes it's really easy and, it, and it's great so observers will be working on the list and they'll write me a question or a comment or something and yeah no problem i can go make the change but if it was a certificate i'd have to go through a committee and get a rubber stamp and you know like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway. yeah i i could go on that that's that's in some ways why although i think it's I think it's worthwhile to to have um, observing projects. I don't. I I shy away from calling anything a list. I like to have a project versus just just a list because I think um, when we try to distill things down into uh, just a list, so to speak, then then like you like you're finding details get lost, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, what I may start doing actually just in my double star pursuit, because again, you know, easy to observe from a light polluted backyard is just pick a prominent constellation uh, that's in the Southern sky um, and then open the pocket sky atlas to that constellation. And then just observe every double star that the pocket sky atlas lists, because most of those stars, like I don't think it goes beyond magnitude nine, maybe is my guess, maybe yeah. somewhere around there. Um, so, you know, they should all be visible within, 
you know, a small, like my, my modest telescope. Um, now some of them might be too close for me to split, but, uh, you know, that's another way to approach it, you know, just toss the list out and, and just enjoy observing. You know, if, if I, you know, if I were you, like, I'm not as, you know, I, and I've become, I've become, thanks to you, I've, I've become, uh, not a double star observer, but somebody who, who appreciates them and, and I'll go and, and observe them from time to time now. So I appreciate that. But, you know, I, I couldn't recommend strongly taking that volume two of Webb's Celestial Handbook. Um, mm. And, and honestly, like, I would just take your copy and then just, you know, open it because this is what it's designed for. And then you just open it to that constellation and then you just work your way through that. And then you could just, it would be cool. Like you could just write your notes right in the pages. <laughs> like that would be, yeah, yeah. that would be a really, really great way to, way to observe a lot of double stars. Cause he went through them all that were, that were known in, into the uh, uh, late 1800s, which, and he was using a 90 millimeter telescope ish. Um, which, uh, which I think with modern coatings and eyepieces and diagonals and stuff, uh, your, your 70, uh, 76 millimeter is, is going to be pretty comparable too. So anyway, it's not, it's not like in a whole different league of telescope really. So I, I think you might have a lot of, uh, uh, surprising enjoyment from doing that, but anyway, um, that, that would just be sort of an aside recommendation. So, yeah. So what else? Uh, so two solar obsession or uh, obsessions, observing sessions. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? I did look at Mars on Friday night as well. Um, one final oh, yeah. passing. Um, it was just too low in the sky and, you know, it's so small now. It, it really was hard to discern any detail. I felt like there's maybe a little bit of white from the one of the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think now. I think it was the Northern Cap potentially. Um but it was, it was flaring. Yeah. So I can't recall that. which one. Yeah. So anyway, that was my last parting shot for, um, uh, for Mars. Um, you know, and, and I guess a frustration with that Takahashi, um, the, uh, the Leica zoom eyepiece that I have, um, like I was just, I, I wanted a comfortable, easygoing session. So I just wanted to use the zoom. So I'm not messing around, you know, with uh, different eyepieces. And, you know, to get the Leica to focus, I have to remove one of the adapters on the Takahashi focuser so that I get more inward travel uh, mm. to bring the Leica to focus. But then when I do that, I don't have enough back travel for the 24 millimeter pan optic to focus. Oh. Uh, so it drives me a little nuts that um, the draw yeah. tube is so short on that thing. But um, anyway, I digress. Um, it was a, it was a fun session. And um I think that's all I looked at that night. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. Um, and then two solar sessions with the hydrogen alpha telescope. Um, yep. And these were, these are really, really fun sessions. Um, the first one. So what I use all of the time is a, uh, it's a Nikon zoom uh, with my hydrogen alpha. Hydrogen alpha is maybe one of the most finicky or, uh, you know, can be one of the most frustrating observing sessions that you could have. Uh, because like the seeing is uh, constantly fluctuating during the day because of all of the heating. Um, so you're usually, you know, adjusting focal length to accommodate, you know, the seeing that's happening. Um, and then, you know, if you get any little bit of cloud or whatever, it can, it can mess things up. But what I've done is I've used a, a Nikon zoom 
Uh, I think it's like an MC2 or something like that. It has a, a focal length um, uh, range of nine millimeter to 21 millimeters. So it's ideal for my H-alpha telescope. I can dial in kind of the perfect focal length based on the seeing that happens that day. Um, and this eyepiece is renowned for providing ortho-like views. It's, you know, um, sort of a, not a lot of people use it, but if you look on cloudy nights, um, it, it, you know, receives extremely good reviews and I can concur that it's a, a well-performing eyepiece. It's always done well, uh, on the hydrogen alpha, but hydrogen alpha is also very finicky, uh, with complex eyepieces with a lot of glass elements, but the Nikon always seemed to be kind of exempt from that rule. It always, you know, gave me good views. Um, but uh, my first solar session this week, I thought uh, I'll try the TMB Supermonos because I, I haven't used those yet on, uh, on the sun with my hydrogen alpha. So I couldn't believe it when I put the TMB Supermono in there. Um, like the difference, like it was, it was a much better view, um, but it wasn't like a subtle increase in uh, the improvement. It was a substantial improvement. And, um, you know, it just kind of affirmed that complex eyepieces uh, and hydrogen alpha just aren't always the best, uh, the best mix. Um, I even put my, um, so I, I compared a nine millimeter TMB, uh, a nine millimeter delight, and then this Nikon zoom at nine millimeters. And there was, there really was no competition. The TMB blew it away uh, for sharpness and contrast and all of that stuff that you look for uh, when doing hydrogen alpha observing. Um, so there were lots of prominences, you know, uh, things coming off the, like the, the limb of the, the sun, uh, looks like little flamey things or sort of eruptions. Um, gee, there had to be close to 10, uh, probably with three or four really large prominent ones. Um, so anyway, had a blast observing the sun that day. Um, the following day, um, observed the sun again. And this time I decided to drop in a, uh, a 20 millimeter Kellner uh, Vixen eyepiece, uh, 0.965 barrel. And uh, that bested every eyepiece I own. Um, and I, I remember reading like 15 years ago, probably, that um, uh, some solar observers really recommended Kellner eyepieces. That for whatever reason, they just seem to work really well on the sun. And um, man, you know, the that 20 millimeter Vixen, um, I've never seen the sun look that amazing. The surface detail was incredible. Uh, faculae were, uh, there, there's a real bright faculae um, on the, I guess it would be on the Eastern side of the sun. Um, there were some two dark filaments uh, right in the middle, which are prominences directed at earth, basically. Um, it was just an amazing uh, solar observing session. And um I, that 20 millimeter Vixen Kellner, I've never used before on anything. I just actually acquired that a couple of weeks ago. So now I'm, you know, kind of curious to see how it does under a night sky. Um, Cause I was really impressed with it on the sun. Eye relief was nice. Everything was nice. I couldn't say anything bad about it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that's my long winded uh, observing report for the week. And uh, hoping to get a little, well, this week's not looking very good for us, but. No, and uh, so I'm taking off, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks from now. I'm not really going anywhere. Um, if I do go anywhere, it'd be fairly local. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping for some clear skies once this, uh, once this moon is, is out. Um, 
of the night sky. And uh, anyway, looking forward to that. So I really had kind of hoped to take this past week off. That was kind of originally what I thought I might do, but uh, because um, I'm teaching uh, my astronomy course, then I also teach at the university for, for a science study that I work on. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's not realistic for me to try to take those, those weeks off when I'm, when I'm teaching. Um, that's just not gonna, not gonna fly that well. So then I try to have to line up when I'm not teaching with the new moon and then try to take, uh, try to take that time off. So, so anyway, it's, uh, it's not, uh, not too bad. So, uh, but speaking of the moon and my class, so, uh, there's, there's an individual who's taken my class a few times before he's not in my class now, but one of the great things, one of the things I like the most about teaching the classes is all the amazing people I get to meet. And, and that's not an understatement at all. Um, and this individual, um, he actually has taken, uh, like full on bona fide university, um, astronomy classes and, uh, is, is into photographing and observing the moon, which I'm, which I'm not into as much. Um, but I do, I do enjoy making lunar observations or if there's something interesting to see, particularly naked eye, I'm super interested in that. But anyway, I was out for a walk, went out for a walk, came home didn't notice or think of anything unusual. I was home for, for about an hour and a half and just happened to, uh, to check my email. And he'd sent me this email saying, hey, there's a halo around the moon. Um, have you ever seen this before? Like, what is this? So I, I kind of went out and at first I was like, well, the moon just kind of looks like there's a bit of haze around it. But then uh, kind of after I, I sort of quasi-dark adapted in my brightly light polluted <laughs> backyard, um, I was like, oh no, there's this huge faint uh, halo around the moon. And uh, I think I sent you a, a text or something. And did you, did you look, did you see it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I did. Like I went out about half an hour later with my dog and um, uh, there was some, there, there was a thin veil of cloud up there and yeah. um, you know, that, that kind of created a bit of a halo effect, I guess. Yeah. Well, it was, it was like about uh 22 degrees off the moon. It, this is what it was, this lunar halo phenomena. So it's kind of far out from the moon, say two fist lengths. And then, uh, and it was faint, uh, brighter in the north. And then there were some other spots that were bright. Uh, but when I, when I first walked out and looked up and it was almost like right overhead, um, I, I, was, I was looking more towards the south and because uh, the northern part was sort of obscured by my house roof line. And uh, so then kind of when I went out into the yard, I was like, oh, I can clearly see it now. Um, but, but good eye on, on that individual for, uh, for calling it out and then, uh, and then for reaching out and, and getting in touch. Um, and I was able to write him back and say, yeah, I've seen this a few times before and I have, I think maybe three times, three or four times before. Um, that was, I think, one of the fainter ones that I've seen, but he actually took some photos. Did I send you the photo of it? No, no, I don't okay. think so. He's, he's working on a better photo. Um, uh, he's a very good photographer. In fact, <laughs> I have like a shrine to the moon in my office, a vintage lunar poster, a vintage lunar globe. And then I have um, this beautiful photo that he actually took and gifted me <laughs> on my wall. <laughs> so it's the only thing on my wall in this room other than my Mars map. So so anyway, that's that's cool. That was sort of a neat thing to see last night. And of course, this is an unaided eye, not uh, not using uh, binoculars or a telescope or anything. And then the other thing I've been observing uh, unaided eye is the uh, belt of Venus in the morning sky. And so mm -hmm. what this is, is it's this uh, sort of purpley 
pinky band that's opposite the sun. So the sun is rising uh, in the east. And then if you go out and look to the west, and you have a reasonably good horizon. It doesn't need to be like a spectacular horizon, but it needs to be a reasonably good horizon. You can actually see this, this band kind of setting. And the opposite occurs in the evening sky where, where the sun is setting in the west. And then if you look to the east, uh, east-ish, sort of exact opposite the sun. These days, uh, being around the solstice, it is exact uh, west in the morning and, uh, and, and east in, in the evening uh, where this phenomenon occurs. And what this is, is this is just, a, just the Earth's shadow being extended out into space and, and kind of as, as that shadow uh, projects uh, sort of from the Earth uh, into space, you can see it cutting through the atmosphere uh, at this time of day just because their angle is, uh, is just right to it. Um, and that's super easy to see from Saskatchewan because it's so flat here. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, I always enjoy seeing that, just the, you know, the nice colors in the sky. Um, yeah, it's quite beautiful. And uh, then I've been doing a little bit of binocular observing. I was out looking at the moon and the Pleiades, uh, the Hyades and, and Orion. And I've got a pair of these uh, Nikon 7 by 35 action extremes. And I've always really liked them. They're one of my favorite binoculars because... Um, I think they have great light throughput. They were pretty inexpensive. When I bought them, they were on sale for like $120 Canadian. And I think they're about the widest field binocular that you can get um, and, and use with, with glasses um, that, are, that are reasonably affordable. Um, and, you know, a number of years ago, I had bought a pair of sort of ultra wide binoculars that you can't use with glasses, but, but they're very, very wide. Um, they arrived out of alignment and then, you know, sort of in subsequent research, I found out that, that the ones that I'd bought, which are a, a department store brand called, uh, uh, Montgomery Ward, which I really never, never heard of before, but they were from the States. It's sort of unfortunate. The binoculars came, they're in mint condition, absolutely perfect. But one of the prisms is out of alignment. So I've always meant to kind of send them to an optical repair shop, but, uh, kind of after I, I did more digging and research after I received those, I came to realize that uh, that maybe these these weren't the best ones anyway, and that uh, I would I would try to seek out a slightly better pair. And then this past week, um, I should say about two or three weeks ago, somebody had a pair of they're called a Cardinal um, model two eight seven seven by thirty five up on eBay, and uh, I kind of waited it out and and did some bidding and. I happily bought them for about $82 uh, American, which is really exciting because typically uh, these can go for as much as $300 American. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great price. So, so why go with these old binoculars when I have a really good pair of uh, relatively recent, recent binoculars? Well, one is that these, these older binoculars have this huge, these huge fields of view. So um, I'd read about them quite a bit. And then when I was visiting um, my folks, uh, they happen to just receive as like a random gift, a pair of these ultra wide binoculars that, that are pretty vintage and, uh, not like the best ones, but, but a good example of, of a good pair. And I had a lot of fun with those one night and I thought, well, it'd be nice to get one that's just a little wider than those even in higher quality. So, uh, it's kind of what I've been seeking now. You have to use them without your eyeglasses on, which for me is, isn't great because I'm, I'm an eyeglasses wearer, but, uh, but I thought if I could never find a pair of these for, for a reasonable amount of money, then, you know, uh, it, it's worth doing, you know? So I thought, well, 
if I can get these for under hundred bucks American, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So I did it and we'll, we'll see if they're in alignment when they arrive here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Um, those old binoculars can be pretty amazing with the wide field. I've dabbled a little bit and, um, you know, the, the edge, the edge of the field is often fuzzy, which drives me a little nuts. Um, so I'm very curious to see how these ones perform. Yeah, so so these ones, the Cardinal two eighty seven, are 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 the exact um, copy or twin of of one called a Sears. I think it's like a sixty two eighty seven dash A, and uh, they say they have a twelve and a half degree field. Although apparently the field is actually about half a, half a degree smaller, and uh, and reports say that about the the inner fifty or sixty percent is is extremely sharp. And then it does it does fall off, but they say the edge on these ones is is just uh, like okay, like it's okay. Um, but anyway, we'll see when they arrive. I kind of figured for uh, essentially a hundred dollars Canadian, um, it's worth uh, worth worth giving a try. And then I thought if if they do need some work or I really like them, they're a bit dinged up. So I think that uh, three hundred dollars would have been uh, too high a price to pay for them. And I, I actually think two hundred dollars probably would be would be a little bit high too. Um, but if they, if they are good um, and need alignment, I'm going to send them in, but if, if they're in alignment and they, they work well, I might, I might send them in anyway with the other pair, get the other pair aligned and get these ones kind of cleaned up. And I just thought they'd be fun to have when we're kind of out at, at grasslands and sitting around and observing and just kind of a fun, a fun set of toys. The, the other ones I have are, are supposed to be 11.8 degrees, although I don't think they're, they're quite that. They seem more like, 10 and a half degrees to me. They, they don't seem that much wider than my, uh, than my Nikons. And I'm not sure I would, I would get a, get a 10 and a half degree over, over my Nikons. Um, but 12 degrees is, I mean, there are three degrees is, is a fair bit of field in, in a binocular um, on, on top of another pair. So anyway, these ones are kind of supposed to be the best. So if, if I don't like these, then I think my exploration into vintage binoculars uh, has come to a conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I bought, um, I think in the fall, actually, um, I bought a pair of town and country. Uh, so similar, like these are really old town yeah. and country, uh, seven by 35s. I think they have like a 10 or a 10 and a half degree field of view. Yeah. Um, but the reason I bought them is on cloudy nights. Uh, you and I talk about Bill Paoloni a lot as kind of yeah. the eyepiece guru. Well, on the old binocular side, I think Martin Pond is kind of the equivalent, right? He's the, the guru of old binoculars or seems like he's used a lot and, and provides some really good information. Um, his favorite of all of them is these town and country seven by 35s. Okay. Um, so the ones that I have, um, they're in pretty good shape. Like they're not mint by, by any stretch, but the glass is good. Um, but like you said, the eye relief, not so good. And even with these ones, the edges are still, yeah. you know, not, not as nice as I would like them to be. I haven't used them a heck of a lot. So next, uh, next time we go under a dark sky, I'll bring them out and give yeah. them a, a test and see how they do. Yeah. I guess like one thing that I sort of have in mind and, and it can be difficult to throw too much in the car, but kind of in my mind, like, like both these binoculars have paid around, like, I think, I think the wards I only paid like 40 bucks for, I'm not sure why people didn't want them because they are in absolute perfect condition, except for the alignment. Um, and I think that can be easily done. Probably somebody who's more mechanically inclined than I am could easily do it. Um, but I think I'm going to send them off when I send these ones off. And then, um, 
you know, I kind of, kind of think, well, these ones again for 80 bucks. Well, I can kind of just throw them in the car somewhere. Um, you know, I kind of got to get storage set up better in, in my, in my car and, you know, um, not really a big deal. Just kind of leave them in here, even with our heat and cold. I'm like, well, they're only $80 binoculars. And, uh, you know, then we get down to the grassland. Sometimes we get those nights and, you know, it can be, it can be good for doing binocular observing, but sometimes we get nights where you can't really set up telescopes for one reason or another. Like, uh, most nights down there do clear, but sometimes we'll get down there and be a rainstorm and then it clears off and it's great, but you get a lot of mist and dew. You set up a telescope and it fogs over in like 15 minutes. And, you know, that does happen uh, usually once a year. And, and then we just sit there and, and play with binoculars. And I thought, well, th this would be a fun thing to have uh, is, is several sets of these pretty good uh, vintage binoculars just for fun. You know, just uh, we're not doing anything scientific or, or, or sort of observing project oriented. It's just sort of a fun thing in itself to, to scan around with. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, nice, nice little thing to play around with. Yeah. Hey, so did you buy the 30 millimeter, uh, ultra flat field from APM or others? No, no, I haven't. Um, if I ever buy that, it, it's, it's probably a ways into the future. That okay. is not an eyepiece that I need right now. And, um, you know, I want a Burlaback tripod. Um, yeah. You know, I'm probably buying a bino view, a used bino viewer here very soon. So I've got some other places for, for my money at this time. And um, the 30 millimeter just is not, you know, on the short list right now. But yeah. I, you know, I'm intrigued by it because it's so light. And yeah. um, I love my 31 millimeter Nagler, but it's one of the heaviest eyepieces you can buy. Yeah. And um, in some applications, that doesn't matter. But um, sometimes it does. And sometimes it's nice just to have a lighter option. Yeah, that's why, you know, and I, I have a, uh, for my ultra wide field, low power eyepiece, I have a Pentax 40 millimeter XW and it weighs about two pounds. I think the Nagler is at least half a pound or a pound heavier than that still. And uh, even that eyepiece, it's, it's just deadly some nights. And I'm just like, ah, oh, if, if I put that in, it's kind of like, that's the eyepiece I'm using because I have to rebalance so a lot of the time I end up using, um, my old wide scan three, um, which is just a basic Koenig and I bought it used off, off a friend of mine. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, just a, a really good, decent wide field eyepiece. I think to my, a lot of people don't, don't like them, but I, I do like it. So I've been thinking about getting the mass CMA 32 millimeter, um, because it's just an updated version of that. And, you know, a lot of people don't like them because they, they don't focus well in, in faster telescopes like F5 or so. But honestly, I use my wide scan three, um, all the time in my, in my 80 millimeter F5, that's like the eyepiece I use in there. And then I also use it all the time in my uh, F6 scopes and, uh, and I'm totally happy with it. So, so for me, it's, it's a great eyepiece. The next person, um, is going to hate that piece. So <laughs> just the way it goes. Yeah. Hey, so yeah. We, we got a question from Phil. Yeah. Do you want, uh, we, we actually have that in an observing report. Who wants to yeah. read? Do you want me uh, to read Phil's? Cause the other yeah, one's sure. on double stars and I always feel like, you know, more about double stars than I do. So, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, go for it. Go All for right. Phil's. So, so Phil asks a question. Um, this is Phil from, from the UK, longtime listener, um, frequent correspondent, you know, really, really great to, to hear from him. I, I thought it was a pretty good question. Um, so he asked, uh, what, you know, 
often we'll get the question or people will be asking, you know, what telescopes should they get to observe deep sky objects? Which uh, he kind of put in his, his question that uh, often it's like an eight inch daub, but yeah, I mean, even uh, 10, 12, you'll see people get uh, 16 inch daubs these days because they're much more affordable than they used to be. And, uh, and indeed like, uh, you know, no sponsorship or affiliation here, but you know, those Skywatcher daubs um, in all those sizes are just awesome telescopes. I've looked through a huge selection of them. They're all excellent. And uh, you know, you can spend an awful lot on a reflector and certainly it's cool when people do, but, uh, but, but just to get the mass produced ones from Skywatcher um, for such great prices these days is, is quite astounding. Um, but then he, he kind of expands and says like, what instrument would be a good uh, instrument for planetary detail and lunar observing um, for a lowish to medium high uh, budget? And now, you know, I guess it depends on what somebody calls a, a low or high budget. There, there was somebody that joined the club once that was into uh, buying sailboats or powerboats or something. So when we told them that, ooh, that eyepiece is like $300, it's quite a bit, they kind of laughed and went, well, I spent that just on, you know, getting my, my boat clean last week or something, right? So uh, all depends on what somebody somebody uh, calls a higher low budget. But, uh, but I guess when it comes to uh, telescopes, I'm going to say like a medium to high budget is somewhere maybe like around five or 600 bucks, Shane, sent about right? Yeah, you know, I think if we go under 500 is, is low, 500 to 1,000, maybe in the middle. And then, yeah. you know, anything over 1,000 we can say is high. Yeah, so probably my recommendation would be something like uh, a five or a six inch Max Sudoff Cassegrain. Um, and, and there's good pretty, I think, uh, again, I think Skywatcher makes a really good five inch and I think they come on a pretty good mount. And I think honestly for, for lunar and planetary, uh, like sort of as, as a very focused recommendation, uh, I think that's a good recommendation. Um, recently my friend Randall sent me photos and, um, what he did is he wrapped his, he bought a five inch and he wrapped it in, um, this um, like insulating material and there's instructions on Claudia Knights on how to do this. And, uh, and he's gotten excellent results taking it from inside his home, which was like 20 degrees Celsius outside down to minus 13. He said it and it, and it was extremely stable. Um, Cause I know in the past that the stability on, on those instruments uh, can be problematic. And I own a six inch Max Sudoff and have experienced that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think kind of with, with that in mind, and now he did a very good job. And I think the, the, the instructions for the five inch mech suit offs, like the ones from, uh, uh, from Skywatcher or, or Ryan telescope and binocular, um, you get one of those, um, they, usually you can get it with a pretty good mount option and then, um, you wrap it up. Now, if you already have a mount, you know, you might want to go for, for some sort of refractor or something. Um, so that's, if you're buying new, if you're buying new, I'm going to say, don't, don't buy, um, like a mass produced, uh, uh Max Sudoff used, uh, maybe I'd, I'd be a little bit concerned because sometimes, um, the meniscus, uh, there's like a, there's a meniscus lens on the front and sometimes they glue on the secondary on the back of that. And if someone's kind of left it in their car, when it's been too hot, I've heard of the, uh, the glue kind of releasing. Um, so that's something to watch out for. Um, but if, if you do have uh, like a slightly higher budget and you already own a mount and typically you're going to want some sort of tracking mount, I really think some of those older Takahashi's like the FCT 
versions. Like I've seen hundred millimeter tacks go for, you know, in that low thousand, say like a thousand dollars American range uh, on different sites, you know, older ones. Um, and they come in a variety of focal lengths. The one that I really am attracted to and uh, kind of like if I had all the money in the world, and maybe didn't already own a hundred millimeter Takahashi would be the hundred uh, millimeter F 6.4. I think that is just, um, you know, a, a really beautiful combination of, of uh, size, uh, focal length F 6.4. Um, you're going to get ultra wide fields. You're going to get a beautiful planetary instrument, but, you know, sort of barring that, if you do have just a slightly larger budget still, um, my, my telescope that I've bought for doing this is the Takahashi uh, 100DC. And I think that, that is, uh, that's probably the best instrument I've ever used to look at planets uh, with. I, it, it comes with a good reputation. Um, I was a little bit on the fence for several years about buying it. And finally, I took the plunge. It went on sale. I forget what it was. It was a good sale, though. It was like, what was it, like 30% off or something, Shane, or 20% off? It was a good sale. Oh, that much? I thought it was like five or 10, but I, I don't really remember. Yeah, well, uh, once once it was all said and done. Anyway, uh, Stefan, who who I bought the telescope from, and I've bought lots of stuff from him in the past, he, he worked out a really good deal, whatever it was. It was, you know, you, you can sort of wait it out and get a good deal. And, uh, you know, for, for a dollar per quality ratio, that is, uh, I think, a, a bargain, like how good that telescope is for, for the price, you know, being... Uh, well under two thousand uh, dollars Canadian. So, uh, but anyway, everybody's everybody's mileage varies. And Shane, what would you recommend for a uh, sort of a low and medium and high budget for for a dedicated planetary lunar scope? Well, um, I think I think maybe what I'll start off with here is, um, you know, any telescope. I think, in my opinion, is good for all of that stuff: uh, planetary, lunar, uh, deep sky observing. Um, now, if you want to do all of that, I would say probably don't go smaller than, than three inches. Um, you know, my little 50 millimeter Borg, uh, is a nice little telescope, but you're not going to see much planetary detail. And I don't think you really start to see planetary detail until you hit at least three inches of aperture or more. Um, so that's, uh, kind of one criteria, but I think the other one that I'll say is the most important is get a telescope that you're going to use a lot and then adapt your observing to that telescope. Um, so for example, you know, my, my 76 millimeter tack is what I use all of the time. Uh, but I'm not going to go galaxy hunting with that. You know, it, uh, it's not going to be great at that style of observing, but it will be awesome for the planets, uh, cluster, like open clusters in particular, um, you know, uh, wide field stuff. There's, there's a lot of things I can do with that telescope. So to me, it's all about adapting to the telescope that you have and get one that you'll use a lot. The reason I no longer have a 12 inch light bridge is because I would use it once or twice a year, mm -hmm. uh, because it was big. It was a pain to set up. It was a pain yeah. to haul. And I just didn't use it. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I had other telescopes in my repertoire that I used way more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, consider the size, consider the effort to set it up, consider the alignment. If you're getting any kind of go-to telescope, all of these factors have to be considered. And sometimes it's hard to know until you actually, you know, use one of these things. Um, you know, it may seem like uh, a 12 inch, you know, daub is, is, uh, not an issue to use, but, um, you know, maybe once you start lifting the, the 40 or 50 pound, um, lower tube assembly, you might change your mind. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as far as recommending a particular telescope, 
Um, you know, maybe to me, one of the better values out there uh, is uh, the Skywatcher 100 ED. I think it comes in around a thousand dollars. And I think that's uh, like a four inch is, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ideal um, aperture, you know, it sort of yep. does everything. Um, you know, lower or, or, or cheaper telescopes. Um, I'm a big fan of the older ones, as everybody knows. Uh, your Max Sudoff recommendation is a good one. Um, I looked through uh, multiple times. I've looked through a six-inch Celestron SE uh, Cassegrain. Phenomenal mm-hmm. little telescope. Like, I couldn't believe what it would show in terms of planetary detail and deep sky uh, stuff. It, it really surprised me. I think they're fantastic little telescopes. And I think that comes with like computerized tracking and that sort of thing. Not, not that we're that into the com- computerized portion of it, um, but certainly the tracking uh, would be really nice to have. But yeah, that would, that's a really good recommendation. It's like six inches is going to give you lots of resolution and lots of light gathering power for, for looking at the planets. Like you'll really start to see detail um, on Mars next time it comes around here in, in another uh, 18 or 19 months. And uh yeah, you'll you'll really see detail on on Jupiter. Should easily be able to see the uh, the red spot. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Shane, I feel like we should have sound for this. Or, or do you have anything <laughs> else to do? You have any anything else to add to to the question from Phil? Uh, no, no, that's everything. All right. I because we're getting these observing reports, and and I really love these. I love reading them. Um, it was sort of like a. It's been sort of like an unexpected regular. Uh, feature in in sort of what we call episode one each week, um, and we've got this great observing report from uh, from Neil, and I believe Neil is from the UK as well. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember where Neil's from, but uh, that sounds uh, that sounds right. Yeah, so the uh, the email we received was uh, the subject was uh, Theta Arigae, uh and then podcast one hundred and one. Hi guys, it's quite a coincidence, but as episode 101 was released, I was planning to observe a double star in Arige on Thursday, March 18th. I didn't listen to the podcast until Friday morning, so it was quite by chance, uh, but it wasn't one of the three you mentioned. It was Theta Arige, and I had seen a discussion on Stargazer's Lounge about this multiple star and how it was a little tricky to find the closest secondary star. It has four components, um, and then uh, this is, I think, from an anth- what does he have here? And from an anthology of visual double stars by B. Argyle, M. Swan, and A. James. So there's uh, there's four components. The uh, the primary is magnitude 2.7, the secondary is 7.2, and then there are other two are 11.1 and 10.1. So um, you know the last two are are fairly dim. So anyway, I'll go on to read Neil's email. Uh, The B star is much fainter than the main star and close to less than four arc seconds, which should make it hard hard to observe. But as luck would have it, I picked a night of very good seeing and found it relatively easily. Uh, Using my eight inch daub and Bader Hyperion zoom eyepiece, I located the star and when I zoomed in, it popped into view quite clearly. At eight millimeters, uh, which is 150 times magnification, it was obvious. Uh, here's a sketch uh, using a seven millimeter university optics ortho uh, with 170 times magnification. And the sketch was quite good. It was uh, neat to see. Um, you know, I, I liked how he captured the stars. Like it really, to me, mimicked the view that you'd see through the telescope. Like they weren't yeah. just perfect really pinpoints. Cool. Like, like if Neil, if you get a chance and you're listening to this, if you are, and, and I didn't reply, maybe I should have. Um, 
but yeah, I was really curious about his technique for, for doing those sketches. I just thought it was very beautiful and uh, well rendered. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, and I like, I like the zoom eyepiece mention, especially with double stars, I, you know, a zoom eyepiece is so nice because you, while you're hunting for the double star, you have it zoomed to the longest focal length. So you have the widest field of view, but then once you find it, you just rotate or twist your eyepiece to increase the magnification until you can make your split. And it just saves you from having to, you know, swap eyepieces in and out. So uh, zoom eyepieces definitely have a place, especially if you're uh, into double stars. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, so that was uh, that's Neil's observing report, and uh, I don't know if we have anything else to talk about. Is there anything oh, on the list? I think that's just about covered it. We got through a lot there in in this episode, and uh, yeah, well, thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.